Fargo, Season 2, Episode 6, Rhinoceros, is over. But we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Thank you very much for tuning into the Fargo Podcast. We certainly appreciate it. Whether it's your first time or you're a regular listener to this podcast, thank you as always. I'm Antonio Mazzaro. I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I'm joined uh, by two men. I want to introduce them one at a time here. The first co-host of this podcast, the co-host with the Mo-host. He's here every week with us. He's Jeremiah Panhorst. Jeremiah, how are you? What is up, Antonio? How you doing, man? I tell you what, your introduction was so powerful. I uh, I soiled my pants just a little bit. You soiled yourself. I hope that you yeah. barricade the doors from the wrong end, Jeremiah, because we <laughs> I, have to hold ourselves out against these jackboots. Yes, yes. Speaking of jackboots, I've invited one in. Are you ready for this, Jeremiah? I am ready. We have Jack of the Jackboots. We have the leader of the group. We have Mr. Mike Blue. Mike, how are you? I am G, but I, I have a feeling people are listening to us, and I don't want to pass off any signals. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna send you guys a subtle click of my tongue, and that'll show you that I'm actually not good. But I am good. <laughs> so you're you're G for good, not G for guilty, and your subtle click reveals that you might be not good or not guilty. I've got it. I've got it. I can do this. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you now. figured it out because Ed did not. Oh my gosh, Ed was Ed was so. I, look, Ed was not the only one who was lost in that scene. I really don't know <laughs> what signals were being sent there with a wink and a nudge. And a, how's your father? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, like of the, I'd say probably the, of the top five characters that you would not want to pass off some sort of convoluted baseball signals to, I think Ed is probably in the top three there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, and I think of the characters you would not want passing them, a drunken Carl Weathers is near the top of the list as well. Yeah, so, and Charlie's yeah. probably number two, right? Yeah, Charlie. Well, that wouldn't be good. Yeah, yeah. Charlie. Charlie would. Uh, he. Charlie's in a harrowing place right now. Charlie is experienced. He's. He's an adult. He's a real man now. Uh, this is bad for Charlie. But yeah, we're. Uh, we're. We're happy to talk about Fargo this week. Uh, you know, if you're like I said, if this is your first episode here at Post Show Recaps, we talk about TV on an episodic basis. Week to week, you can always subscribe to our show feed at postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. That's our main feed. I'm sorry. And that'll get you all of our podcasts, including our Fargo podcast here. Uh, you can also tweet at us and leave your thoughts to us. Uh, Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. If so, if you're looking for a Mike Bloom type, uh, hit him up on Twitter. Jeremiah is at Jay Panhorst. So he is always available to talk Fargo as well. Additionally, we love it when you leave your comments on our show page at postshowrecaps.com. Uh, each episode uh, for, Far for Fargo, we have a separate comments section. We had a really lively comments section in the last episode. I was very happy about that. So we love jumping in there and talking to you guys about the stuff we talk about on the podcast and the things that occur after the podcast, the uh, new theories, things that develop, and maybe the voice that you guys had that uh, when, you, when you're when you listening to the podcast, like, how could they not mention uh, this or whatever? That's what the comments section is for. So we love that. Always uh, please join us at postshowrecaps.com and leave your comments. Uh, and really, I don't know, what other comments can you have about this episode other than how is your heart? Uh, how are you doing in this scenario? Because we had so many face-offs in this episode and so many standoffs and so many characters having an opportunity to kind of really uh, stand out here, including uh, Carl Weathers, obviously. Uh, Mike, this one's for you, first of all. How are you feeling about season two of Fargo overall? And, and where did you feel like this episode fits within the context of the season? So... I know you guys made the argument last week that I know, Antonio, you and Josh experienced the first season through a binge process. And I actually, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, Jeremiah, I'm on sort of team binge as well. And that I experienced the first season in that regard. And I was agreeing with you guys at first that I feel like maybe the season would be 
better to get through on a binge just because, you know, the slow burn is burning a little bit faster. But I don't know, after between like last week and this, I'm actually kind of enjoying the week in between to really, as you just talked about with the comments section, sort of mull things over. And I feel like this this second season in particular is tackling so many different themes than the first one didn't. Um, I know at the very beginning of the season, I think the thing on everyone's mind was like, how much will this parallel the first season? You know, are Egg and are Ed and Peggy? I almost called them Eggy. Uh, are are they are they uh, are they the Lester Nygaard? You know, is Mike Milligan the uh, the the Lauren Malvo? And we're starting to see as the as it progresses that this is an entirely new thing. It's traipsing totally different territories, and that makes me so excited. And I think now that we got the spark lit out from under us last week, we had literally the most incendiary episode of the season thus far last week. Now we're starting to see. I don't want to call this falling action because I think we're still escalating here. It does surprise me that in an episode where a lot of people got guns pointed in their face, nobody died except for these, like, you know, the two, a couple of, uh, a couple of red shirts, uh, on the, the Gerhardt on the Gerhard yeah. side, the, the Ger, the Ger red shirts. Um, <laughs> though I don't know that I'm, I don't know if we want to talk about preview stuff, but it looks like we may have lost somebody next week. Yeah, well, let's, we'll talk about that a little later into the podcast because I felt like that was, uh, pretty poorly handled. So we'll, we'll cover that later just in case anybody doesn't want to be spoiled by that. But yeah, I, I agree. There, there wasn't a ton of, uh, loss of life this week. We have a feeling loss of life is coming. Uh, we still have only just a couple of players from Kansas City involved. And I feel like the, the Gerhardt clan is, kind of gathering their their chickens together here uh, and maybe not paying attention to priority number one. And I think that's stalled the, the the war a little bit. We had talked about on this podcast about how it was interesting that the show seemed to be building to such a fast conclusion in the middle of the season. But now that we're a couple episodes later, it certainly seems like they're getting their money's worth out of this uh, the stuff that they've built. So I agree. I don't think it's falling action. I don't think the season has climaxed yet. And I do think anything is still possible. Jeremiah, being as we've podcasted about this every week, where do you feel like we're at with the, the course of the season and where this episode fits? Are we, you know, are we, doing things a little too slowly? Uh, should we be advancing the ball a little more? Are you happy with the pace? Uh, wh- what do you think about where this episode kind of takes the pacing of the season in general? I think it's, I think we're fine. I mean, it, this, this was another episode you could certainly say was more of a plot four type episode, but they still, even with that said, was able to maintain a high level of tension throughout every scene. I mean, they had, you know, just climatic moment after climatic moment and they, it kept, kept me going no matter what, even though, like you said, nothing really happened as far as no one actually died or anything. So I've been perfectly okay with the pacing so far this season. I think, I mean, I'm sure there is, you can make some arguments that maybe we should speed things up a little bit, but you know, you have 10 episodes, so you have to find a way to pace it out in such a way to where, you know, everything just doesn't happen in one episode so i think they've been doing fine with it i've I've had no problem whatsoever and i thought this was another outstanding episode yeah we had a comment from uh gal bomb at our show page at postshowrecaps.com and gal said i'm happy i watched one episode each week because i had a week to think about it and that kind of goes to what you were saying mike uh, and to really get excited before each episode i remember the week between episode six and seven when I wasn't sure if Molly died, mm-hmm. I had a very tense week. And Jeremiah and I, I think, both remarked that you know there hasn't been that sort of cliffhanger uh, that that you know that season one kind of brought to the table with the Molly.
Denali incident and the snow shootout and things like that. Uh, and I think that that makes it feel like the show maybe is progressing a little more slowly um, than than the first season. I mean, by this first season, I think by this point, we had seen a couple of really, really major incidents uh, that sort of punctuated these episodes. And it does feel a little more redshirty uh, in this particular instance with, you know, a shootout, but people aren't really dying on screen and big things aren't happening. That said, they have done a good job, as you're saying, Jeremiah, of maintaining the tension. Even when we know a character like Lou isn't going to die, um, they still do a fantastic job of these face-off scenes. And the one with Carl Weathers, especially, I thought, was really knocked out of the park. Yeah, right? It sounds like you guys yeah. agree. This was this, yeah, was, this was, was his awesome. coming out party. I mean, to quote another famous Carl Weathers, we had a stew going on this episode. Uh, I mean, <laughs> a lot of meat on that bone. Yeah, and it's it's great. Uh, makes me want to go out to a Burger King after this. But I, I feel like uh, Nick Offerman, I mean, I think as the episodes kind of progressed here, we saw a little bit of him in episode one. We were pumped, like, oh, great, this is another Walter Sobchak type. We're really excited. And then he sort of, Wet purple and to use survivor terms for a few episodes. He came back last episode, you know, had his, a nice humorous moment with Reagan, but you, you have like a fantastic light here of comedy and Nick Offerman. You're sort of hiding under a bushel a little bit. So I, for one, am so happy that basically the latter half of this episode focused on the, uh, the continuing adventures of a drunk Carl Weathers trying to negotiate his way through several, uh, uh, sort of rustic gangsters while also protecting a, a possible murderer at the same time. <laughs> yeah. We had so much discussion about like how much we were going to see of this character because we could tell that he was just gold TV gold. And so for him to actually get an episode where he really shines, it was just, it was perfect. It was everything I could imagine. And it was just, it was just fantastic. Yeah, I was very pleased, not only with what, what you guys are saying, and especially, Mike, the how you point out, the second half of the episode really belongs to him. I think mm-hmm. the way they handled the credit sequence, they, I mean, that's his episode completely. And that's his sort of, uh, I think, his just kind of stamp on the season, and it's a very memorable thing. It's not Dennis Reynolds or Glenn Hoverton getting kind of shot up in season one. It isn't the incident with the fish or uh, with uh, Oliver Platt kind of in, in the first season. It isn't some of those kind of really memorable things that happen. Uh, but it, it's memorable for a different reason. It's memorable for the dialogue and for the way the dialogue is delivered and the eye acting. I'm a big fan of eye acting, as mm-hmm. you guys know. Uh, the, cool. eye acting, the eye acting game on Nick Offerman in this episode is super strong. Um, so that, that's all really fantastic stuff. And yeah, very, very thankful. And, and I feel like we're very lucky to get this. Bob Odenkirk had some funny comedic moments in season one, but he really didn't get the tour de force kind of episode that Nick Offerman gets here. So props to Noah Hawley and crew and Fargo for delivering a, a darkly comic episode with the misadventures of Carl Weathers. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would compare it, if anything, to like, I, I'm still a little... I'm still a little indeterminate as to like whether I liked Key and Peele's roles on the last season where they sort of got brought in to be in Fargo after the time shift happened and they were like sort of funny in a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead type of way, but didn't really have any sort of a effect on the plot. So again, I feel like, you know, if, if Noah Hawley took notes from season one and decided to improve upon them, I feel like he found a way to make a comic character work in this type of setting. 
Mm. Yeah, you you do lose a little uh, when you make an entire episode more comedic. But that said, they found a way to make that tightrope walk work here, where you had a character who was the clown for about half the episode, and then he has to go off and face off with, as you put it, Mike, the rustic gangsters. And that puts him in a very untenable position. And you don't want to see the clown crying, and you don't want to see the clown die. And so they they find a way, I think, to have to have both, to use the comedy to generate not just pathos, but use the comedy to generate emotion and to generate a true care uh, for the character that really ratchets up that final scene. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that's, that's the thing that I think everyone has been hailing the praise this season, especially this in this episode for this exact stuff that we're talking about, because he, he, this character went through. So, I mean, here I'm, he's making me laugh throughout this entire episode. And then we get this a very intense showdown between him and bear with that shotgun, in his face. And like you said, Antonio, I could just see it in his eyes, the, just the fear he had in his eyes, but he kept moving forward with what he needed to say and he diffused the situation. And, and then you're like all of a sudden going from laughing at this guy to going, wow, that was pretty damn impressive. So this, the, the way they handled this in this episode was perfect. Do it, you was, get, it was yeah, great. Do we, do we think we sh- uh, a la you know, Saul Goodman, do you think I, Carl Weathers should get his own spinoff show? That's exactly what <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say. It, it has a little bit of echoes of Saul Goodman, actually, and a character who's able to, to speechify, to bloviate, to roll a 20 with a speech kind of thing straight up. You know, I saw that on Reddit. Like, these, these people just uh, can, in the moment, just deliver a great speech and really sway the day. Um, but the rest of the time, they're, they're comedic relief or comic relief, and I think think that that Fargo pulls this character off really well and it does fit right in there with the Saul Goodman type character so funny with the Bob Odenkirk connection to season one we've got Carl Weathers here there's also the natural John Goodman Walter Sobchak thing that I know we've talked about Mike that you mentioned I think that really comes to the forefront in this episode with a lot of the way he's carrying himself. His buddy is a lot like Donnie his name's Sonny yeah like there is that, there are the, Sonny yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course you wouldn't, you know, like he basically tells him he's out of his element when Hansy comes into the garage and wants to kind of cut him up. So there is there are all these parallels there and they're not so on the nose that they're, you know, that they're obnoxious, that they're ham handed. I think they're doing it deft enough that it's really uh, hitting and really doing a very good job. I mean, Walter Sobchak's always talking about Vietnam, too. So there's a there's just a natural affinity uh, for these types of characters because of our familiarity with the source material. And I think they're doing a really good tribute there uh, of, of this. And I I really enjoyed the flowery language. But I mean, the dark comic stuff is is a hallmark of Fargo in general. Mm-hmm. Certainly the film, uh, the Coen brothers real, uh, really they're, they're just all of their, uh, cinematic creations are filled with dark comedy. And this is certainly no exception, uh, with the Fargo, with the Coen brothers inspired TV show that it would be rooted in this. But I do think it's a little more prevalent this season. Even Lou, uh, is always kind of quick to crack a joke at the beginning He's, uh, you know, taking Ed in and Peggy's really kind of uh, haranguing him like you can't prove this. It's unprovable. And poor Ed's crying. He sheds a single tear in the back seat. And then Betsy's waiting at the station and Lou's just like, oh, yeah. Oh, imagine if you sailed in and told the man in the black pajamas uh, that, you know, your husband had to come home and pulled him home by the ear or whatever. And, you know, he's he's 
Lou is just ready. He's very cool and ready to kind of crack a joke at a moment's notice, uh, if need be. And so he's always punctuating the tension. Hank is the same way. Hank has always got a funny line to spin or something a little funny to say, which I think makes the Hank scene with Peggy in this episode uh, a lot more powerful because he really shoots it straight to her. uh, And I think that that plays a lot better. So they're doing, in my opinion, a fantastic job of mixing the serious and the comic, using the comic to play into the dramatic and and playing the dark comedy really well. So it's all, they're firing on those cylinders for sure. Uh, we didn't get much of Charlie Gerhardt in this episode. Uh, he's been played a little bit for comedy and a little bit not. Uh, I don't know. He He's, like I said, he's grown up to be a man, but he, he really makes the phone call that sets the Bear uh, scene in motion. Uh, I'm curious what you guys thought of the scene with Bear and Otto Gerhardt on the porch there, talking about the brother that is no longer there, Elron, uh, and then Dodd showing up, and then Dodd and Bear relating to each other the way they are. I mean, yeah. did you guys feel like tonally that scene that scene hit, or um, how did you feel that that scene played with the rest of the episode? So it's interesting because when I first started watching this season and I, I saw the Gerhardt family, I was reminded a lot of something like King Lear, uh, where you know an, an, an older figure that leads this family and he becomes he's he's fallen ill or he becomes older. And like King Lear, he's, it's basically a fight over who gets to uh, own the power in a portion of his kingdom. And one of the things that I've been loving about this season, too, is that it's all about like generations and family, which is something that we've dealt with a little bit in season one, but not so much that, you know, outside of Lou and Molly, we really didn't have too much family stuff going on in season one. And in season two, almost in like a Game of Thrones mentality, or even to make a modern comparison, like a Justified or a Sons of Anarchy type of thing, we're dealing about what it's like to to be part of a dynasty and what that role in that dynasty may be. And I thought it was super medieval of them here where, you know, bear is, uh, we, we found out before that, you know, these are, those were the, they're the remaining two sons of the Gerhardt clan. Uh, and you know, bear does talk about, as you just mentioned about Elrond, whether he was Elrond Hubbard, we don't really know. That'll be my- <laughs> at first. I thought he might've been that that's maybe that's our crackpot theory of the week here. Oh, um, no. but I, but I love that. I mean, you guys have talked about before how it's, it's sort of been a simmering pot here with the, uh, the conflict that's been brewing between bear and Dodd specifically, you know, bear seeing Dodd trying to bring his son into a business that he doesn't want his son to be a part of. And, uh, it's very poignant, you know, when bear is talking to him about, you know, the day he found out that Elrond died and he still considers Elrond the oldest one. He still is, feels that Dodd is, has sort of an illegitimate claim here by claiming he's the older child. And Dodd himself has taken on a, a very paternal role in the family to the point of where he's literally going to hit bear with his belt because he dared undermine him. And I mean, I think the, the fight was a long time coming. Dodd has poked the bear for a long time, literally. Um, and so I, I was, is from a cathartic point of view, I was sort of glad to see it happen, but I, it's, those dynamics have been so interesting to me. And I, I think Floyd's line here about you're going to, you're going to kill us and split and get tear this family apart is very, very telling of what's to come. Yeah, and I certainly I felt like that dialogue definitely set things up perfectly for the little br- the battle we were going to have between the two brothers, which we had been waiting for. We we definitely knew it was going to happen soon, and I the the fact that it it broke out to the point where Dai was getting ready to beat him with the buckle end of the belt was a little little bit little bit took me off guard. I wasn't expecting necessarily that, but it was it was certainly fascinating to watch. Do what, so I'm trying to remember this, when we first learned about. Elrond, the, the, bro- the brother that died. 
Uh, now he died in the sur- in the war, right? Is yeah, that I what think it was she the said? Korean War, yeah. Okay, that's not what I thought Floyd said. So obviously he was old enough to be in the military. So I was trying to get a, a, an age bracket to see how how old he was when he had had died. So okay, yeah. So I, the sense I think it was the Korean War, Mike. I, if you remember differently, let me know. But yeah, yeah I think he, I think he died relatively young, but in the military in the Korean War in the fifties, and um, and I think that this is probably. I don't know where he, you know, where he fits in this. I, we got the great kind of character note uh, for this character that hasn't appeared on screen about how everyone else in, was in their winter coat and he was in his T-shirt making muscles. Uh, and Bear, I think, is wondering, like, what it would be like if, if he was still around. And then you're right, Jeremiah. Like, Dodd has kind of stepped up into a different role. I thought it was interesting here that Dodd is actually making some salient points, not, by the way, about Simone and her choice of profession, as he thinks to to call it. It's not career advice. We'll talk about that. But, no, he was making some salient points to bear about why Charlie should have been involved. And when he looks at Charlie, he sees the same sort of, and this is going with what you were saying, Mike, with the generations, he sees the same sort of gumption and attitude that their grandfather showed when he stowed away in a ship and he sailed to America and he struck out on his own and he did something for himself. And that's what he see, That's what he saw in Charlie rather than the opposite, which is to sit back and do nothing, which is kind of what Bear is saying. And Bear uh, is not happy at first with Dodd, but he sort of, he sort of uh, submits to this and bears like he's 17 years old. He has a crippled hand and he's not saying like, I, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. After a time, he's basically saying like, you're going to do that. Dad usually does the belt. And, you know, bear is obviously used to being not the number one son one way or the other. And so he slides back into that role right away, which is fascinating to me because he clearly, I think is, he has designs on not being the number the number two son. He has designs on playing his own game. But I think he's easily kind of beaten into submission, if you will. Uh, and he easily submits to his older brother and what he thinks the rules of the family should be. And he asks for the buckle because he wants to be tougher. Because I think the buckle hurts a lot more than the strap. Mm. So, you know, yeah. Dodd was pleased with him for that. And... Dodd makes a good point. Like, I can't have you beating me up in front of the group. Like, there's got to be a hierarchy. And, yeah, Floyd interrupts it. But I did think that that was interesting, that even though Dodd has literally just been about as horrible as he's been on the show so far and telling his daughter he's giving her career advice about being a whore, uh, he makes a very salient point here uh, with with Bear. Uh, and I don't know. What what about the scene where, where he's calling Simone a whore? I mean, is there anything else Simone can do to go behind Dodd's back at this point? Or is this just driving the knife in further? How about, Jeremiah, what do you think? No, I, sir, I, I felt like that was just to drive the knife further. I mean, the, the the way we get immediately where she goes and 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 tells calls makes the phone call and she's compl- complaining to Mike and you know letting her know that her frustration she's leaving out on Mike, so I, I felt like that that was definitely where that was setting up. I have to admit I know this doesn't make me sound very bright, not that it's that hard to do that, but I have to admit I was a little surprised by that Dodd immediately went there with that conversation just by I mean all she's all he sees is her she comes out she 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 kisses her grandpa on the head right. And then, and then he leads into this conversation about, you know, her profession being in horror. I was thinking, what brought this on? I mean, did I miss something? Because, I mean, I, I just, watched it a couple of times and I was thinking, why did he – what did he go there? I mean, I mean we all kind of understand – that makes sense to us as the viewers because <laughs> we know – we well, we, we, what we always say is we know for sure what she's up to. But, I mean, just – I just – I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting he went – 
to that right away. Did, was well, there something I'm missing? No, not necessarily. I'm curious, Mike, what's your take on this? Because I've made it pretty clear that I have no love lost for Dodd Gerhardt. I don't think that the character is adding much more than one dimension to the show. Uh, I'd be happy when he's gone. I don't think he's really brought anything to the table. His sort of single-mindedness uh, against women uh, is nicely paid off here with what happens with Peggy, but it not paid off enough that it's justified just how abhorrent he is throughout the rest of the series. What's your take on Dodd, Mike, and, and how how to play how he played out in this scene? Oh, he's the worst. Yeah, he's he's the worst. Uh, he is. Yeah, I mean, and but I think it's for. I mean, the Coen brothers have these type of types of characters sometimes, and I do. Part of me does feel like he's sort of he is not the agent of chaos that Lauren Malvo was, but I think he's showing the same level of malevolence here. But it's sort of coming from a place of misogyny rather than again a place to just sort of watch the world burn. Um, and I mean. Uh, to Jeremiah, to kind of answer your question before, I mean, if, if I'm looking into the psychology of Dodd, which is scary on its own, but I feel like, you know, his, he just, like, kind of taught his brother a lesson here. He showed his machismo, his alpha status in front of everyone that was out there. I think he was sort of riding high and mighty and decided to just throw a claim out there. And, uh, you know, he definitely has been making unkind comments to his daughter beforehand. And I would love to know the, the history between them. They sort of allude to it, but something tells me that, you know, this is, you know, Dodd had had a night with a random woman and then she kind of coerced him into raising this daughter, um, which meant there's really no love between the two to begin with. I mean, Simone even says that she doesn't feel like daughter's their father whatsoever. Um, but right. I mean, I, I feel like I, I agree with you slightly here, Antonio, that like the, the payoff isn't really there yet, but I, I'm, I like that we're starting to see the, the threads fray a little bit that, you know, because Dodd is sort of underestimating the women. And I feel like the female characters on this season are a lot to talk about as well, because outside of Molly, they were kind of non-existent in season one, kind of a boys club. Uh, and they were able to, but not in that tone of voice. <laughs> no, uh, definitely not. Uh, but they were, but they were able to work with, uh, they're able to work with some great female characters and female actresses this season, which I, again, I, I think is a really great improvement here. And I think, you know, it's, it's very poetic here that I'm, we're, it's all pretty much scripted right now that the Gerhardt clan is going to fall because Dodd is underestimating the women. And you have this conversation between Floyd and Simone, where she's basically telling Simone, like, listen, just kind of keep your head down and, you know, hold your position and we're going to, you know, we're going to rise to the top someday. And I think that's also, you know, Antonio, you talk about how this is very reminiscent of the times. And I feel like this is extremely reminiscent as well. I mean, Jeremiah and I finished talking about Mad Men, right? This is taking place a little bit after Mad Men. This is the late 70s as opposed to the early 70s. But this was like a huge period in the ways of feminism. And Peggy even says, you know, in this day and age, like, where I'm a strong modern woman, I can go out and do what I want. And I feel like Dodd is sort of a representation of a lot of these past ideals. Uh, and he tells that story, as you talked about before, with his great-grandfather coming overseas. I feel like he lives and breathes by that old-school way of thinking. And he's going to get trampled by this new-school way completely. It's going to be his undoing, is my prediction. Yeah, and he I think that's a good prediction because he's... Look, he says he cracks heads for a living. He's simple-minded. He is certainly not a business entrepreneur or the sort of captain of industry type. Uh, he's not running the money. He's not doing any of that. He's just a headcracker. And he kind of admits that to Charlie, like I said, and uh, that's what he is. So he's fairly simple-minded. He's fairly straightforward. So yeah, Jeremiah, he doesn't know that Simone is literally sleeping with the enemy. So he has no reason to really call her a whore per se, because he doesn't know about 
her sexual activity. I think it's really just based on what she's wearing. Uh, and he almost kind of laughs about it. Uh, and he's kind of a jerk. But, yeah. you know, this whole, like, uh, the, be the downfall or what he's focusing on being a problem, I think that it's underscored by the fact that, you know, they all leave in a convoy. They leave everybody there. Uh, you know, they leave, they leave only a few people there, and everybody else goes out in a convoy. And Dodd says that great thing, which, you know, has been remarked upon in this podcast and by Alan Seppenwall at HitFix and others that people are dead and they don't even know it yet. And Dodd says that in the car about the butcher. He says uh, uh, he's yeah. already dead and he just doesn't know it yet. You know, like he's ready to – he's basically proclaiming the death of another character. And I think it might be interesting to see that when he points that finger, there's three more pointing right back at him. That he's dead probably both literally by the end of this series and figuratively in the ways that you guys are describing in that – yeah, the times for people like Dodd Gerhardt uh, are changing, that they're going to have to accept uh, that things are going to change, that women are going to be more, uh, and that they're not going to get to run everything the way that they just expect to by birthright, uh, and that things are going to happen differently. And so I do think he represents the sort of vestiges, not even the last vestiges, unfortunately, because we're still dealing with a lot of these same issues today, but the vestiges of a society that totally is tacit in its endorsement of treating people this way. Um, and it's not even considered to be a bad deal by anybody. Uh, and so I think Dodd does represent that as well. Um, so I, I do think that that's all very interesting. And I, I think you're right, Mike, the speech that uh, sticking at the Gerhardt uh, kind of house here, you know, we, we have a scene later where uh, Simone is, is called Mike Milligan and uh, we'll get into Mike Milligan into that, but she's off the phone and now she's kind of restless, it seems, wants to leave. And the only people that are there are Floyd and Otto and Simone. And Simone says, I want to talk to you, or, or, or Floyd says, I want to talk to you, Simone. And she does give her that speech about how it's our time and we're not preordained or predestined anymore. We can be what we want. And that does interestingly compare to where Peggy's at uh, with her life. And I think that that is a sort of fascinating way to look at things because I, I you know, if, if Oto stays alive, Oto, Otto, we've had some questions about how to say it. I'm saying Oto. If Oto stays alive, um, then Floyd's time never comes. And maybe she has to kind of work behind the scenes or in the shadows. Like I think a lot of us probably imagine our grandparents or if we remember the interactions, uh, maybe we saw our grandparents work that way. Like my grandfather thought he ran the house, but everyone knew my grandmother ran the house, mm -hmm. like that sort of thing. That's, I think, where Floyd may have been. But the fact that Oto's had the stroke has pushed her forward. Uh, and now, so she's in a position where she might have been happier behind the scenes and running things the way she might have been running them. But now this way, uh, it's a lot different for her. And she's sort of been thrust into this position where she has to kind of be uh, the kind of woman that is more of a modern woman and a more in charge kind of woman that demands and commands respect. And, you know, Jeremiah, I know you talk a lot about the, uh, you know, just the, the Peggy Olsons of it all, like the, the way Mad Men as a show focused on this sort of the women's, women's, women integrating into the workplace and women integrating into the world and the things that they faced. And that show was set about 10 years before this one. But of course, this is in a small town and not in New York City. So it makes a lot of sense, I think, that we're, we're behind, we're about 10 years behind the times here <laughs> yeah. in Minnesota. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, what's, what's great about it is in an episode that wasn't, I know, heavily going through the, the themes that we've gone through 
all season long. But did this this question and this discussion about uh, you know, women and independent women and, you know, the feminist movement things was brought up quite a few times in this episode, not only in, like you said, that conversation that uh, Floyd has with Simone, but then we have, of course, like like Mike pointed out, the conversation with Hank and Peggy. And then also, too, if you think about it, though, what Betsy was saying to to mm-hmm. Lou about the discussion about, you know, well, maybe, you know, if, if a woman would have been in charge, things would have been a lot different with the war. So all these kind of questions about, you know, looking at women, you know, being women being looked at differently and be able to, to realize that, hey, we, we can do a lot of different things other than just, you know, be a wife and a mother and all those things. So I, I thought it was great how we got to see a lot of this going on in the episode, uh, even though there was a lot of, you know, things that were going on at the same time. It was just great. I thought it was a nice, nice way they handled that in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. And it, it is interesting because. I, I I will talk about Mike Milligan and his Jabberwocky poem in a minute, but it, we, we see Peggy interacting with Hank here, and we see this kind of the inside the psyche of Peggy in a way that maybe we haven't really heard her directly articulate yet on this series. And she's she's basically a human Pinterest. She's got these magazines just strewn about because she's pinning them and saving them for ideas and articles, and she's mad about it. Like, this this woman in the modern world would have been perfectly thrilled to have a Pinterest account uh, and pin everything, but she unfortunately has to save all these magazines, and she tries to play it off. She says to Hank, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, I got to stay on top of the latest trends because of my line of work, you know, implying that because she works, at, you know, in a salon, she has to know what hairstyles are popular, and that's fair, but even Hank in the moment is like, well, that explains the beauty magazines, but of course, it doesn't explain the Better Homes and Gardens, it doesn't explain all of the other magazines that are there, uh, and everything else that goes into play there. Um, I, I do think that that's, she still wants to go to the seminar, she's still very focused on that. Hank is not here Hearing it, he's really laying down the law, and he's basically saying, "Like, listen, your little thing, you know." She's like, "It was a, it was a little robbery, attempted robbery at the butcher shop," and he's saying, "Like, Peggy, come on!" And he's trying to break through to her, like, "You know, we're going to get you on Rye Gerhardt. We've got our forensic team coming in." And uh, I really like the line from Peggy in this scene where um, he, she basically says, she's talking about what a woman can be, and uh, there's, uh, she's like, she can be, uh, she, there's nothing she can't be. You know, like she, that's, that's the, what occurs to her. She can be, there's nothing she can't be. And I think that's what Peggy wants. And Hank's response is to say, what? You're a little touched, aren't you? Yeah, that's, uh, oh boy. Hank, I mean, you know, as much as you talk about like Hank being able to crack a joke and he was able to stare down Mike Milligan beforehand, not the best episode for Hank. Uh, no. considering that, I mean, uh, I, I know we kind of, we made gripes about him in the past, but I mean, I know you're a little concussed, man, but you left Peggy inside while these murderers might have gotten in there and done something with her. You should probably go back into the house and not go to your car but again maybe because he's seeing double his sense of judgment is warped but uh yeah i think uh hank the hank and peggy conversation is really interesting as well uh because i mean i think kirsten dunn's had her best acting by far this episode um when we finally got to see those walls break down in the second half of their conversation when hank outright asked her the question that everyone's been asking her why did you keep driving your car after you hit ride gerhardt and peggy breaks it down really interestingly when she says you know you talk like this is a vacuum like it's a or b like it's a test but you know 
it's just me and I basically she's outlining like, you know, I saw it as a, as a way to run away, uh, which I think is so interesting because it's almost taking this ideal of independence that we were just talking about that came with the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s and completely swinging in the other direction with it in terms of saying, I'm so free that I'm going to leave my entire life behind. I'm escaping the museum. And so we can see how that sort of the sort of ideas are blown out to its biggest extremes. Yeah, I think that's right. And Jeremiah, I, I had a question for you. I mean, she basically, do you think that she was throwing Ed under the bus here when she says like, you know, if it had been me, I, I could have just up and left. And she really does seem to be throwing Ed under the bus, I think, for the fact that they're still there. Not the fact that she brought the body back, but the fact that they're still there and they didn't get away with it. She's putting on at Ed's feet because he wanted to stay there. And I, I don't know. Is that, was that your read on it, Jeremiah? Or did you have a different? <laughs> yeah, read? that's exactly this. That's the exact read I had on it for sure. And you know, this question about how she brings up this moment of being, like you said, Mike, at a moment of escape. I mean, I know, I know she, I know this is really fan fiction here stuff here, but it makes me almost kind of wonder like, did she drive off with this guy in her car hoping that this incident, if she did this, could maybe lead Ed to saying, yeah, let's get out of here, let's leave this life and, and do what she wanted? Because it really, there's so much about Peggy that still kind of get, has your head scratching, like wondering what, you know, like, I know I completely understand where Hank's coming from because that's exactly what I'd be like. What were you thinking? I mean, why any normal person would have done all the things that Hank suggested, you know, call the police or flag down another car or something. But yet she just calmly drives the body home. So I just wonder what is really deep down inside this woman, you know, like what is what exactly is really going on? Because obviously she is completely unhappy. That conversation she has even later on when she brings up the fact that, you know, she's living I don't try I should have I was hoping I wrote that that, that line down, but I think she said something about how she is uh, living Living someone else's past. What living living in a museum of the past. Yes, living in a museum of the past. And it's like, that sounds like someone is just so miserable and would do just about anything to get out. Yeah, I think that that's the, it, what's really interesting about this is I think we've had that read on Peggy. We've talked about it on this podcast. Last week was sort of a signpost moment for her character because she chooses to pivot away from that. Right. She sells the car. She's going to stay with Ed. We're going to do our gift of the Magi thing. And look, the reason that they're going to nail her to the wall evidence-wise is because she didn't look out for herself and because she did sell the car. And I think that that's fascinating to think about the, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. If she had stuck to her Peggy guns and continued to do what she wanted to do, if she had been able to flee for California at the drop of a hat when she wanted to go, she's right. They probably would have gotten away with this. And yeah. so even though... Uh, even though her behavior, I think we see it as, you know, a little bit uh, hard to explain. And I think it's not necessarily coming off in the show uh, with one kind of portrait. And I think the more we get of Peggy, the more we're, we're getting a fully drawn character, which is fascinating. I, I think the moral point of it is very interesting that in choosing not to focus on herself and in not doing what she wanted, even though she was kind of the person who got them into the trouble, um, they could have probably gotten away with it if they would have continued to follow what she wanted. And I think that that's, a, that's just an interesting thing that I observed, uh, that, that she was kind of hoist by her own petard, if we're going to go full Shakespeare on this, Mike. <laughs> 
Uh, do, you know, do you know what that means? Are you are you Britting that? <laughs> I'm not Britting that. I know what that. Means. Uh, it's, yeah, uh, I and it's it's interesting because I mean we also hear yet another allusion to the fact that she wants to go to this seminar in Sioux Falls, and as we know, the big cloud hanging over the season is that there is a massacre at Sioux Falls happening. And the interesting thing about it is that it's I'm predicting that like Peggy is going to eventually be able to successfully follow those, those instincts and get there, only to be eventually killed off. I mean, I I don't know about this. I a lot of these characters have been suffering from what I call Mace Windu syndrome, uh, where I am deathly afraid that because they are not in uh, the present day storyline, that this is the moment where they're going to die. I definitely had some Mace Windu syndrome with Hank this episode. Uh, and it's tingling a little bit for Peggy right now, where I'm feeling like if there is a massacre in Sioux Falls right now, I feel like she's going to be, you know, gunned down with all these other, uh, all these other life spring people. Yeah. I mean, that seems highly likely to me. Jeremiah, do you think we're heading that direction? Yeah, that's, I was having those exact feelings as well, that that is where we're headed. I think, I think now Ed, because before I was thinking it was Ed that may get out of this thing alive, or, or Ed would be the one to be get killed. Now I think it's going to be Ed that's going to live, and I think she's going to die. Yeah, I mean, that, that will be kind of interesting to see. I mean, we know Ed is still nominally in police custody, even though he's kind of on the run, uh, and the cops are, I, I don't think he can outrun a police car. So I really don't think Ed's getting away per se. Um, but Peggy, no, has, no, Peggy, but he'll live. Hopefully. Yeah, he'll live. But as you pointed out, uh, Hank, shoddy police work in this episode. Not only does he leave Peggy there and not check on her, I don't, he kind of comes to in his police car. We don't really see him looking around for Peggy, looking around to see if anyone's left. We don't know what becomes of Dodd. Uh, there, there's just a lot of question marks, I think, at this, uh, at the house, um, with Peggy. And I think that that's kind of fascinating that she's in a position now where it certainly seems like she can kind of take off on her own and we know where she wants to go. And I think it won't be too long before um, some kind of connection is made or uh, or we we end up with an unfortunate occurrence at Sioux Falls there. Uh, maybe Ed will insist that they need to find Peggy, and that's probably where she went to. And the police will end up there, and then there will be a shootout because someone will get followed. I don't know. But I do think that that's uh, – I do think that that's a very interesting kind of uh, the way that that's going to play out because, you know, we do get this scene at the – we'll stay at the at the Peggy and Ed house here. We do get the scene with, with Hank kind of facing off with the Gerhards that show up, specifically with Dodd uh, and with Hansy. And Hank kind of holds his ground, but it doesn't look like it's going to end well for Hank. And certainly he gets the butt of a shotgun to the face. And then we have this weird sort of – um, Silence of the Lambs esque scary basement maze yeah. uh, with all the magazines and Peggy's like she's the serial killer in this scenario. She's the Jason uh, or the uh, you know the Michael Myers in that she's knocking stacks down and silently taking people out. She somehow gets a hold of Dodd's cattle prod. She shocks his conscience and shocks his body. Is Dodd, Dodd is Dodd dead? No, uh, hey, I have not- that on my question mark. Yeah, Dodd's not dead, right? Like, no. there's nothing to that. No, that would be, uh, you know, you talked last week about whether Joe Bulo dying in the beginning of the last episode was anticlimactic. I feel like this would be even more anticlimactic. Um, even though, again, we talked about poetic justice and him being uh, shocked by being underestimated by uh, underestimating a woman. I feel like there's so much that can be wrought out of, you know, we saw even in the beginning of episode one, a little bit of Peggy and Ed being like, well, we have this man in our house. We have no idea what to do with him. I feel like we can, we can drag that out even more. I have, I have a hunch that Peggy like subdued Dodd in some sort of way. And when Ed comes home, she's going to find a tied up Dodd and they're going to not know what to do with it. And there might be some misadventures there 
because I think, you know, I, I think this, this would just be a weird way to kind of end things off. If we want Dot to go a little selfishly, I want him to get like brutally slaughtered to make up for oh, us yeah. having I to think, sit through this character. Yeah, I think we're all on the same page I, about it. I, yeah, we're definitely on the same page because that was exactly my thought too. Was is that we're going to lead off so, in this episode? I think I think Dodd uh, I think Dodd dies in the next episode, and I think you're right. He's he's going to die by the hands of of Peggy and Ed together. They're gonna they're gonna they're not going to what to do with him, and they know that he's after him, so they're gonna they're going to kill him off. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. So it's pretty fascinating. If he did die, that his last word was a hard B thrown at Peggy's face. Like that's perfectly in keeping with his, uh, sort of chauvinistic character. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's open-ended where Peggy is. If she's even still at the house, what the status of Dodd is at the house. Dodd stupidly yeah. shoots one of his own men in the basement. God. I mean, this is a comedy of errors there. Uh, so I, I mean, it's just not looking good for Dodd Gerhardt there at Ed and Peggy's house, but we don't really know, uh, uh, where we're going to pick up with the next episode there. So that's still a little open-ended. Uh, yeah. we, you know, going back a little bit, we, we know kind of what's going on uh, with, we'll get to Carl Weathers and Ed and Lou uh, at the last part of this, but I want to talk about Mike Milligan kind of getting geared up here and Milligan's choice, if you will, uh, when he's given the information by, so or by, uh, by Simone, and he's told kind of what's going on. Um, she says, he called me a whore, and she wants him to be super sensitive. And then she says, he says, any last words for your father? And she's like, yeah, tell him I said, kiss my grits. Uh, and, then, and then we see what he chooses to do, which is he goes to the Gerhard house and shoots it up instead of going after her father. So he's clearly not acting in harmony with her, even though she's giving the tip. And he's not super sensitive to her feeling insulted by her father. Uh, what did you guys make of Mike Milligan's kind of actions here and his choice of Lewis Carroll's poem Jabberwocky <laughs> as, his, uh, getting, as his getting pumped up montage uh, music? Well, I would say first that uh, I think it alludes clearly to the fact that the Kansas City people are going to quit the gangster business and become a dance troupe where they only wear white masks. I think that's <laughs> clear foreshadowing. Uh, well, Jabberwock is an interesting poem because it's, even Lewis Carroll admits, it's pure nonsense. Yeah. Um, and so mm -hmm. I'm, what I'm thinking, this sort of ties into the title here, which is Rhinoceros. And the, the only connection I can make with Rhinoceros, it wasn't as clear as something like Gift to the Magi. There's a, a Eugene Ionesco play called Rhinoceros, where the basic plot is that it's this French, it's this absurd play where there's this French village and everyone is slowly turning into a rhinoceros um, and everyone's slowly transforming into a beast. And there's actually an, an interesting line in the middle of rhinoceros that goes, humanism is dead. Those who follow it are just old sentimentalists. And I think that sort of mm. resonates sort of what the, the Jabberwocky poem is, which is sort of like people that are trying to ascribe meaning to things are the ones that are going to fail in life. Uh, maybe we're getting a little bit of chaos. Maybe I spoke a little too soon about there not being a Lauren Malvo type of character. Maybe what Mike is trying to say through this poem is that, you know, these actions that we're doing are purely random. They're, they're not coming from any sort of place to ascribe meaning to. And that sort of is how they're able to get the jump on other people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah. possible, and because it didn't really have a lot of meaning to it, it it is interesting that he chose to go to the house. I I don't think I mean we'll we'll talk about the previews at the end, but I don't think we know the fate of any of the characters there at the house, be it Simone uh, or Floyd or Oto. We don't really know from that shootout who lives or dies, or we don't see anything else at that at that house, and we don't see any more Milligan the rest of this episode. He made a choice when he knew the Gerhard clan was gone to shoot up the house he doesn't seem to have specifically targeted anybody 
but it's possible he killed three people in the process. I just don't think we know. So it does seem kind of random. I don't know. Uh, Jeremiah, what did you feel about Mike Milligan's choice here or the use of Jabberwocky? <laughs> well, I think Mike handled the Jabberwocky pretty well. Although, by the way, spoiler alert, I heard Stephen Fishback will be uh, reciting that poem during the next episode of Survivor, so I just thought I'd let you guys know. Will he also be, will he also be gutting people down? <laughs> yes, he will. Uh, uh, but knowing, no, his, knowing his accuracy, he'll probably miss every shot. Yeah, probably. But, uh, you know. Um, hey, no, I think here's what I thought was kind of interesting about this is, is that I was trying to actually see what the logic was into going and attacking the compound with no one there hardly i mean it was is the goal to try to take out floyd i mean if that's the case that you know okay that makes sense but if you know floyd somehow survives this and i think that she probably will then it to me it almost kind of seems a little pointless to go up there and attack them in a few you know kill a few meaningless you know red shirts like you said earlier I just don't know if I completely understand why they went up there to attack. I mean, did, did this, am I the only one thinking that this kind of seemed like it wasn't on paper, a logical idea? No. And I think that's, again, I think that gets at the heart of what Mike was kind of suggesting. The My rhinoceros connection was to Salvador Dali, uh, who of course is, you know, just this famous kind of multi-functional artist who uh, drafted and was very surrealist and uh, would paint and do all sorts of crazy things. He was obsessed with rhinoceroses, and he was obsessed with the horn. Uh, there's pictures of him with him. I think even when he pops up in a very small cameo played by Adrian Brody in Midnight in Paris, he's constantly talking about a rhinoceros, and he's obsessed. And I, his obsession, it, it, you could probably do uh, write a senior thesis about it, uh, about what it meant or what it entailed. But I don't really know what the rhinoceros connection is, and I'm I'm happy to accept that it could be just what you're, you guys are saying that Milligan's actions seem a little random. It seems ceremonial more than anything to shoot up the Gerhardt house without a specific target, without going into that house and going person by person and shooting them one person at a time until you've killed everyone in the house. That may well be what ends up happening. We don't know how far the scene extends past the kitchen with the apple kind of bowl getting shot up right. um, because it ends. So we don't know if next episode we're going to see Milligan in, in Kitchen Brother. What do you call one Kitchen Brother, by the way? A kitchenette? <laughs> yes, I would say <laughs> Sure, so, that sounds good. Yeah, if Milligan and Kitchenette go in there to the actual kitchen uh, and then find three people lying on the floor and shoot them all one by one. I mean, I don't know if that's what we're, we're heading with this. I mean... It is a little weird to me that we didn't get anything else at that house in the rest of this episode. And, it, of course, it was in service of building the tension in these other scenes. But right now, we don't really know what the method to Mike Milligan's madness is. So it makes sense that I think he's kind of, when he has a chance to say a poem, it's not one with a particular point, And it is filled with a little bit of gibberish. Uh, and maybe there, there's not a lot of sense to it. And maybe his actions are a little surreal or they're a little nonsensical or whatever. Um, and maybe that's the only connection. But... I did think that was interesting because Mike Milligan's a character who we feel like maybe knows what's going on and is a couple of steps ahead. And this is his opportunity at ascendancy. So we'll see how he takes that uh, going forward. Anything else about Milligan that you guys want to cover? Or, let, or should we get to uh, the, the Rock County Police Station? I mean, I will say that I think Milligan shooting up the Gerhardt house is also kind of a message from him to Simone uh, for him to say, you know, because last week I think even though he has a very stone-faced demeanor, I can assume that he's pretty pissed off that 
you know, Simone did not know about this tip off and that, you know, she wasn't able to warn him that Gerhardt's men were coming for them while they were on the shooting range. And so maybe this is a way of him kind of getting revenge and also kind of telling her like whatever trust we had is over. You betrayed me before. So now I'm going to betray you now. Jeremiah, is there a possibility he's still upset about that thumbs up too? <laughs> yeah, he might be a little bit upset about the thumb thing. So I think yeah. uh, I think somewhere between what Mike is saying and the thumbs up and all of it, I think we we have a character in Mike Milligan. And yeah, I mean that's not he, he was very interesting last week because he was menacing to Simone, but he sort of left left her off let her off the hook because he still needed her and he still needed her for kind of this very thing, right? Yeah. For giving yeah. him an opportunity, and once she's given it to him. I think he does see her as just a whore. And as a matter of fact, when she says that, he basically says, like, well, you kind of are. Like, uh, you know, if the shoe fits, like, is basically what he says. So that's absolutely how he sees Simone. This isn't a star-crossed lover's romance like Simone might see it. Uh, This is for him. I think she is purely a tool uh, to aid in his uh, particular ways of takeover. It's just kind of interesting that he's choosing the way he's choosing uh, but, you know, we know that the Gerhards are down uh, in in Laverne, and we know what they're up to. Uh, Lou's got Ed in the police station. He's giving him the business. He's mad at him because Ed did not come clean when he gave him the opportunity. Ed does what you should always do, mind you, in this scenario. You should always do this. Ed asks for a lawyer. Uh, let somebody else do his talking for him. And that can't yeah. be held and used against him in court. And thankfully, the only lawyer in town is a drunken Nick Offerman playing Carl Weathers. Fantastic. Carl Weathers rolls into the police station, just absolutely shit hammered, uh, and says, Caesar's ghost. And he says all these <laughs> great things when he's walking in about the get out of my way, you know, uh, I, I, you know, tool of the state. Uh, and you know, the law is a light on a hill and he's starting to parrot Ronald Reagan there. And I don't know. This is just great when he, when he walks in. I mean, I could have, we, we talked about this earlier. We could have a whole, episode of this and we would watch it we could have a spinoff like mike was yeah. saying call it Stor- uh, call it stormy weathers stormy weathers i like it antonio i have a question for you Please, as, uh, right, as an yeah. attorney uh have you ever used that term of that you're going to put the sledgehammer of justice on someone i have not used it in a legal context okay no. <laughs> i just didn't know i just want i just want to clarify that yeah no i haven't, I haven't used that one in a legal context uh, <laughs> you should consider using it though i, like I will that. i'll consider sledgehammer of justice sledgehammer of justice <laughs> yeah that that was my nickname in high school actually oh okay uh, oh, nice. yeah, for a different reason it was uh it was sports related uh, oh. no um I, I do think it's interesting that he's dropping the sledgehammer of justice he's dropping this the light on a hill he's dropping the tool of the state he's he clearly in his element like this is what he loves to do and i i think that it's really funny at one point he's walking in and he's really bloviating and then he's like oh hi denise you know it's like (laughs) so he's clearly playing a character i can't tell if he's playing it up for ed uh or what it is a little interesting that ed didn't know that the only attorney in town was carl uh i thought ed lived in this town but uh it is pretty funny that that when they see each other that you've got this great g or ng kind of interaction here yeah um but what what do you guys think about uh carl weathers is is he i mean you had 30 minutes he used four uh but i feel like he still did his job as an attorney uh so i don't know what do you guys think from from a non-attorney perspective is this somebody you'd want representing you well first i'll say that uh i mean i think uh, you know if however much bloviating carl did i think he's in good company considering that ed completely uh misremembered the the myth of sisyphus which i think like totally he's like yeah sisyphus you know he went out and he pushed that boulder up every day he's the model of tenacity when it's really like no it was a punishment that's yeah he, right. he, it wasn't something that he, he wanted to do but going back to carl um i mean i think 
we got to kind of see both sides of the coin here uh, almost five minutes later when I'll tie this into how he talks to Bear as well. Because, um, I mean, Antonio, I, I don't think he was necessarily playing a character because I think from what we saw of him previously in the Veterans Hall, even before he got, you know, tapped on the shoulder to come do this, I feel like this is just who he is when he's inebriated. He's one of those tangential drunks that will just go on to long monologues about things that people don't necessarily care about. Um, I mean, that being said... He knows his stuff. I mean, he granted he only needed those four minutes because he told Lou, I'm just going to wake up the judge and they'll dismiss him. Uh, but I mean, the cops have also not proven themselves to be the, the most efficient type of people as proven throughout the Fargo canon, considering we had this one guy that didn't realize, didn't understand the idea of, oh, let's break, you know, let's break light bulbs so we know people are coming in and let's lock the door. Uh, so I think that Carl actually, the best part about Carl this episode, I feel, is that he actually does have some skills here, especially as I talked about when we get to his showdown with Bear and he is able to calm an angry Bear down and basically say, like, listen, don't be trigger happy. You need to protect your son, which I think he did a fantastic job doing. Yeah, there's a great, that's certainly great, the juxtaposition of these two. Uh, he does have a cup of coffee. I think he sneaks one in there, but I, he's certainly not sober. I mean, he's barricading the door from the wrong side. <laughs> he may have soiled himself. Like he's not, he's not got it all together, uh, but he really brings it in that moment. And it is interesting that Lou kind of says, uh, I need you because you've stared down people, uh, you know, in war and that you're not like a farm boy like these cops. And I think that that's interesting. I did laugh really hard, by the way, when he said, I'll defend you till your dying breath. <laughs> and he's like, sorry about the death penalty snafu. I am inebriated. <laughs> so that went really well. I enjoyed that. But I don't know. It's possibly soils himself. But yeah, you're right. When the bell truly rings and he has to be on point outside, Mike, he really, he really delivers it. And he's able to communicate emotionally. He's able to communicate logically. He's able to make sense to bear a guy that we've seen kind of back down to Dodd a little bit, but we haven't really noticed that Bear would back down to someone like this. Uh, so he, this is Lou's plan, and shockingly, it works to perfection. Yeah, it does. That was one of the questions I had for you guys, because at first when I was seeing when I was seeing the, this plan unfold, I was thinking, this is not going to go well. But yeah, like you said, it did, it did wind up going pretty well. Yeah, yeah and I, it, it really does. And yeah, what, what were, Mike, I had. To, I mean, I just want to know. Um, this is this is kind of an interesting thing that that he's faced with uh, because he he really comes close, I think, to meeting his maker. And he seems to. When I talk about eye acting, you know, guys, mm -hmm. I'm on point. Did you feel like he he felt like it was coming, like he was one second away from being shot in the face, and he really felt like that, or was he sizing up the situation differently in your mind? Well, I mean, it's interesting because I agree. The eye acting, I at least got a tinge of fear from him, though. I don't know. Nick Offerman also has this kind of panicked expression. He has bulgy eyes, uh, so he kind of has this panicked expression on him constantly. But I think his drunken state absolutely helped as well. I mean, when you are inebriated, you are more carefree and you're probably able to throw caution into the wind more. I'd be interested to see if a sober Carl Weathers would take on the same conversation. I mean, he did, as we talked about before, help kind of save Sonny's hide there when Hansi came asking about the car, but he hasn't really face down too, too much with these guys, specifically when he's looking directly at a gun. And to answer your question, Jeremiah, about like why Bear decided to do this, I don't know. I'm a, I've been under the impression that Bear's the one that responds to reason. Let's sort of compare these two. Uh, they're not exactly, exactly similar situations, but let's compare Hank and Dodd to this situation. Hank is trying to reason with Dodd as well and tell him the truth and give him a logical point of view, but Dodd's not having it. Whereas Bear, as we showed before with his, you know, his conflict with Dodd, if he's talked to in a reasonable tone and he's given some good points, 
he'll most likely back down, especially, again, when his son is involved and he cares so deeply for his son and wants him to get out of this game that any sort of risk that might keep him in it and risk his life, he's willing to pull out for that reason. Yeah, it was a logical response to a father who, like you said, really cares and wants the best for his boy. He does. He he's stated many times he wants his kid to do anything but be in the family business. So I thought that that to me, it made sense in the end about why he decided to go that route, because, uh, yeah, it gives gives his kid a much better shot at uh, maybe getting out of it. Yeah, and I, I think that I think you're right. I think Jeremiah think that it is a logical way, and I think it does happen that way. I felt it was a little convenient that that uh, that Carl knew these facts about the case seemingly out of nowhere. I don't know when he got this information. He's just a damn good lawyer, Antonio. Come on. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to call it out. We, we talk about everything we love about this show, and I want to talk about one final thing before we close here that uh, you know we know I don't like about the show. But uh, but yeah, we talk about everything that's great about the show. I thought it was a little convenient. He knew the kid's age. He knew that you know they got him on a shot, but not a thing. We didn't see this interaction with he and Lou. Uh, in fact, when Lou says, "I need you to be his lawyer," Lou kind of gets up and leaves and takes Ed out of there and has no further interactions with Carl. So I don't know where Carl's got the info. Maybe somebody else at the station gives it to him, but he knows exactly which information to use against Bear. And you guys are right. Like it finds a, a, rece- a welcome recipient because Bear has been so focused on everything that goes on with Charlie and if Charlie's too young and I don't want to ruin Charlie's life and I don't want to make him into a gangster and I want the best for him and I don't want him to be on the run. Like he does, he knows the way to make the appeal. I just can't tell if it's blind luck or what, but it happens that it works and he's got the perfect audience. I did think it's a great juxtaposition because Lou goes out there and tries to talk sense to Bear. Bear's not having it. Mm. Uh, Hank goes out and tries to talk sense to Dodd. Dodd's not having it. I mean, Lou has gone up and talked to Bear in you know at the Gerhardt clan, and it doesn't go over really well. So I do think that it's fascinating that in this moment, Carl is able to do with just literally his balls and his word, like he's able to do what none of the police have been able to do, which is talk some sense to some of the Gerhards. And I think that that's fascinating. And you're right, Mike, it probably is a little bit of liquid courage and the beer muscles kind of showing up here. Um, but he, you know, he really, I, he does show the fear to me shaking a little bit he's bleary eyed i don't know how much of that's from the drinking but we get this credit sequence and we get these sort of scenes intercut with carl back at the bar doing his kind of ranting did you guys think that that was meant to occur immediately after this seat this scene or when did you guys think that those those kind of outtakes were meant to be from if any time i took took it to being that that was uh earlier in the evening um while they were there that's that's what i took what about you, Mike? No, I thought the same thing because I'm thinking about, like, why would Carl want to go back to the Veterans Hall? Because I, I think that even though he might have had the liquid courage, I think he's still pretty shaken by the events of the night, considering that he has to at least go home and change his pants, right, before going to the Veterans Hall. And by, at that point, it's probably late at night. So I would yeah. I would probably see it as a... And I, I'm also... I would love to know from you guys, like, why do you think... Because I think this is, like, the first post credit scene we've seen this season and i'm wondering why it was included if only just to highlight nick offerman more yeah i wonder that too um and that's exactly what i was thinking is that it, it maybe is just kind of nick offerman's kind of 
salute episode. Like this is his, like, okay, this is your episode and that's what it is. So I did find that to be that these post-credit scenes were almost to put the Nick Offerman stamp at the end of this episode. Like, yep, we're, this is his episode and this is how it is. Cause this is another episode of this season of Fargo, which ends very anticlimactically. We just see Ed kind of running off. We see Hansy coming out of the woods. Hansy is certainly not going to chase down a police car on foot. Uh, he'll probably show up, but the police know where Ed's going. They're going to get there first. Hansy's just Hansy. So I really don't see a climax in this ending. We did get the Man of Constant Sorrow cover by Blitz mm-hmm. and Trapper, which of course is a connection to O Brother, the Coen Brothers film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was nice. Uh, but yeah, I didn't think we don't, we, yet again, we don't have a climactic ending. And so it, this season of Fargo, I'm not saying it's not artistic, but from a narrative standpoint, we have a lot of episodes that end on a more artistic point uh, than ending in a you know a big narrative kind of pause. We did have Ed, you know the police showing up last week, so that was a big one, and we began right in the middle of that. But sometimes these episodes end on these low, you know, these lower or slower points, and that's where we're at. And so I think because of that, they're able to stretch out the story a little bit. Uh, and I find that in- an interesting aspect of this season of Fargo more so than the first season. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one one thing I wanted to try to remind a lot of people is that for those of you who haven't really thought about it this much, but, you know, you have to think about the pacing of the this particular season. All this has happened within a few days. So I think sometimes we kind of get caught up or we forget about the fact that all this is happening so quickly that I think sometimes that it's kind of hard for us to comprehend things that way and not forget, you know, like these moments we were talking about earlier, how it's like, well, we're not seeing these things happen, but I mean, this, like I said, this is happening very quickly. So there will be some points where it seems like something is missing there, but when it's happening so fast, there's, there's only so much they can, they could get in there. And so just, you know, something to keep in mind when you're watching it, because this, you know, like I said, this is happening within what, three days, three, four days, this is happening. So it's, it's, it's quick. It's happening very fast. Yeah. And I'm happy for one that Hansi has gone full Terminator here. Uh, I was totally reminded <laughs> of like Arnold when he like walks out of the forest robotically and just pursues the, the path that Ed had taken. Uh, and you know, with he's separated from Dodd now and with Dodd possibly captured at the house, I feel like that could be a really interesting thing as well. And I, I actually, I want to bring up, you know, a, a, one thing before we, we start wrapping things up here because it ties into Hansi a lot this episode. I, Antonio, I know you previously complained about the split screen and I feel like we got a lot of split screen this episode did it did it improve your mood upon it because i actually really enjoyed the use of split screen this episode i mean this episode didn't didn't move the needle negatively or positively one way or the other for me i think the times they used it this episode specifically with the jabberwocky uh, kind of montage showing the characters in their places as he was getting ready to do what he was doing and showing kind of all of that i think that when they're doing it that way and it doesn't, it isn't just a stylistic choice. I prefer it. I, I'm okay with that. I, I think that the show has the ability to be both stylistic, uh, and also deliver kind of, uh, from a format standpoint and show that, you know, this is driving the story for it. It isn't just split screen for split screen's sake. And I think that too many of the times in this season, we have seen them playing with it in my, for my liking a little too much where you'll have the same scene from two different split screens, one out of focus and a character will walk closer and then it'll be a close up on an object they're bending over to pick up in the split screen. I don't, I don't like that stylistically. I don't like it. I think when the style gets in the way of the story, when the style gets in the way of my enjoyment of something, mm-hmm. I think the style should always complement it. And it shouldn't, I shouldn't notice the style uh, as, as only the style. And I think that that is 
very – look, it's easy for me to step back and criticize. I'm not making the show. I think it's a very difficult thing to pull off. I think most of the time in this season of the show, they've pulled it off fantastically. And I, it, I've sort of – it's sort of faded into the background for me. But at the beginning of the show where I feel like they were really trying to put their mark on what the season was going to look like, I think they used it a lot more. I don't know. What stood out to you if not the Jabberwocky scene uh, with the split screen, Mike? Um, I would say there's this really interesting one where – and the scene we talked about before where Lou sits down with Carl and basically says, okay, you're going to have to talk to Bear and you're going to have to function as Charlie's lawyer. There's this really interesting thing where the screen literally splits and in the middle we see – Bear and Hansy, and Hansy was used a lot in this split screen in terms of during the face-offs, we kept seeing him head through the back door. Um, and I think in that aspect specifically, I thought it was really fun to kind of literally show the danger that was waiting outside and to see like, it's almost as if the doors were opening to reveal the danger that was outside. Uh, so I, I, I enjoyed that. And I agree, uh, in terms of the Jabberwocky stuff, it, rem- it reminded me of something out of like 24 stylistically, but yes. like checking in with everybody beforehand. But um, I, I'm probably a little higher generally on the, um, on the split screen than you are. I mean, I, th- I think, I think it's found a use in some perspectives. I know like the, the random shot that we had of Bulo and, uh, and Milligan and the kitchen brother sitting in the same car was kind of looked at with kind of a question mark until we saw last episode when they mirrored the same shot, but only Milligan and one kitchen brother. So I'm wondering, you know, maybe this overuse of split screen is slowly but surely going to have mirroring effects in later episodes. Yeah, it's possible. And that may be something that's lost when you're watching it week to week, as opposed to watching on a binge. And, you know, Mike, you and I talked about Master of None, the new Aziz Ansari sitcom, and how Netflix maybe is positioning themselves to make shows that are both bingeable and not bingeable, that you might Mm -hmm. want to take in one chunk or that you might want to take in a big chunk, and how some shows may be made specifically for binging uh, in that each, you know, each episode is ending on a big cliffhanger that makes you want to continue to keep watching, and some are not made that. Some are much more of a slower burn, and I think that this show maybe is trying to toe the line both ways in that... There are some things that are set up that will pop if you watch it in sequence on a binge a lot better than if you're watching it. I mean, it's really hard to remember specific passing shots from six episodes ago unless you watch it all kind of in a bunch. Um, even if it, especially if it's only like a four or five second shot, uh, it's really hard to make those connections on the first go round. So I do think that that is interesting. Jeremiah, where are you at on the split screen? We haven't talked about it in a little while. Yeah, I I, kinda, I still have the same feeling about it. I think you know, as far as this, it's a, it's I know it's a style choice that they've made. Personally, to be honest with you, the reason why one of the things that I really am glad is is that they didn't abandon it. You know, they've kept it throughout the entire season. It's it's part of the season. It's it's that's it's the look they're going for, and I I appreciate the fact that they're continuing with it and not giving up on it because even if it if, even if it means that there'll be people like yourself who's not loving it, but at least they're sticking with it. And I do believe, I feel like Mike said, I think this was an episode where it did really work well, especially like the scene you, you mentioned with with Mike in the poem. I thought it worked great there. And I definitely thought it worked great in the sequences uh, during the standoff at the uh, police station. I thought that worked great with Hansy coming through the back and all that stuff. So at times it does work very, very, very well. I don't necessarily always love it, but I am just, I'm glad that there is, at least it's not something they just started and then abandoned, which I would never think that, that Noah would ever do something like that. So, but I'm just glad that they stick with it. I think, I think it works out just fine. 
All right. Well, that's good because the one final thing I want to talk about is something that uh, I've made pretty clear. I'm a little concerned about how it is or is not working. And it's something that really I'm keeping my eyes on. I want to talk about it because Mike's here and we haven't talked about it. We didn't really get anything tonight in tonight's episode about aliens, but I would like to kind of suss out, Mike, where you're at with this. Jeremiah, are you ready to get into some alien talk? Well, absolutely. We can get some alien talk. If if you're ready, here, let's do it. Let's do it. You are now entering Alien Talk with Josh Wiggler. Mike Antonio Blum. Mazzaro <laughs> and Jeremiah Pan. Right, so yeah, I was going to say, and special guest Mike Bloom. Mike, what uh, are your feelings on this alien stuff? Well, there was no alien stuff this episode, which is just what the aliens wanted us to believe, so they could yeah. trick us the entire time. Um, oh no! <laughs> uh, yeah, an alien laugh. So yeah. I, I feel <laughs> like uh, I joked with you guys about this before we recorded, but I feel like maybe there was a little bit of an invasion of the body snatchers going on because when Bear was at the police station, he had a much different voice than he usually does. But maybe it's just because he was Ooh. angry. Uh, in terms, yeah, that was his police voice. <laughs> in terms of the <laughs> alien stuff in general, I mean. It, I, I trust Fargo to not go full Indiana Jones and, and the Crystal Skull here. Uh, I think that it's it's it would be a complete jump the shark type of thing. Uh, and I, I trust that they wouldn't do it because it does seem pretty ludicrous. I'm, I'm on your side here where you're, you're thinking it's more of a metaphorical thing. And that, I mean, for going back to, again, this idea of the Jabberwocky and Rhinoceros and the idea of random acts of occurrences that don't necessarily have meaning to it. I mean if there's an idea that things are above us watching us and could take us at any point in time, I feel like that ascribes pretty much to that theory as well. So I like the idea of the aliens more than I'm actually think we're going to see them. Uh, if we full, if we see a full on UFO come, uh, I, I will, <laughs> you're out. I had, yeah. I'm- well, it's, it's interesting because I feel like we have seen that already. There was a great discussion at, on the show page for last week's episode at post show recaps. John Davis had commented, uh, about how he feels like the UFO thing is perfectly explainable and feels like the show has already shown that it was the lights from a train passing in the night that Raya actually saw that if you live in this area and uh, commenter Trent C also commented that he's been and lived in areas uh, where trains have kind of come by at ice at night and the light does bounce around everywhere. I live next to the train tracks. I've seen trains in all manner of lighting uh, and snow and ice and everything. And I just haven't seen that happen. I've also seen the Polar Express a few times. And so I know what a train looks like in ice. But what I will say is that it seems like there could be a, a rational explanation. I just don't feel like the show has presented the alien involvement in a rational way with the lighting on the butcher shop at the end of the episode, with the way Hansy loses a couple of hours between the clock uh, on the wall in the diner and his watch. Um, and with the way that, that the lights look when Rye has seen them, I do feel like uh, that the show is presenting it as though these are actual UFOs. I agree that it's probably not going to have a narrative point, like I've said, and that it's probably being included in the show for more thematic reasons. But I do feel like the show exists in the world where UFOs are real. And I think that that's kind of a weird uh, disconnect or there's some discord there with this true crime kind of story um, that the show is presenting. This is a true story. This is a true story. Oh, by the way, aliens are real. 
Like that part yeah. of it to me is a little bit off-putting and it will be interesting to see how they tie it. Yeah, and I think if you want to pull that twist out, you have to get people really, really on board with your show. And I mean, I'm not sure how the ratings have been on Fargo Season 2 thus far. I, I'm not sure if as many people were into it as they were frothing at the mouth over the first season. But I mean... You know, Noah Hawley has to have everyone eating out of the palm of his hand in order to really pull out that alien twist. And I mean, I consider myself eating out of the palm of his hand. And if he pulled the twist out at this moment in time, I would still be angry at him. So I think that goes to show he's going to have to jump through a lot of hoops in order to make this work effectively without getting a huge rise out of your audience. Yeah, it's tough. And Jeremiah, we've talked about it at length. And uh, I, I would just point everyone to the to if they want to continue to talk about this, to the discussion that was going on in that page at Post Show Recaps. But um, but yeah, it it is it is what it is. And we didn't get any more of it this episode, which is interesting because uh, this episode was more of kind of a Western shootout kind of thing with a lot of standoffs and things like that. But the show has not left it behind. I don't think we. We've not seen the last of the alien connections. Um, real quick before we wrap up, just wanted to hit what was kind of discussed in the trailer for next week. So if you don't want to get into that, if you didn't, if you didn't watch that or you don't want to be spoiled by that, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for downloading. Let us know what you thought of the show. You can tweet at us at AC Mazzaro is me at a Mike Bloom type is Mike at J Panhorst is Jeremiah. Mike, do you have a hashtag recommendation? Uh, we, do you want to go with stormy weathers? Something along. Let's the go line? with stormy weathers. Yeah, so we'll <laughs> go with stormy weathers. Uh, that was that was David Weathers pitched for the Reds, and we called him Stormy. So I like that. But yeah, let us know if you if you listen to this, uh, send us that hashtag. We'd appreciate it. But uh, now let's talk about the next week on Fargo. Uh, spoiler alert! Here we go. Yeah. So Otho Gerhardt is dead. Apparently. Yeah. Dead. Yeah. The cripple, as as Simone calls him in the 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 preview, seeing him uh, at the grave, uh, whether he's dead in that shootout, it certainly seems like it because she's yell she's yelling at Milligan like I didn't want you to kill the cripple. Right. Yeah. This is it's these, these repercussions are so strange because you would even think in a show that's as visual and visceral as Fargo that you would show this unfortunate man be helplessly shot up by the Kansas City crew, but. Again, and I totally agree with your earlier thoughts here, Antonio. Like, I'm so confused as to why we didn't see any other any aftermath from that shootout. And I guess they wanted to leave it as a cliffhanger, but this seems like our, our, it almost like came out of nowhere. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're probably going to see more going back to that, like we were saying. But it, it is really random, and I'm not. I, I don't understand why they chose to show that in the promo for next week. You would think the way the character's been presented and how he's been sort of a silent witness in a lot of these scenes and how we even got the flashback of him kicking ass and taking names that he shouldn't die off screen. Uh, and we shouldn't have that revealed before we see it on screen. So I thought that was kind of a misstep by uh, FX's promo department. I don't think Noah Hawley has a say with what goes on in those. Yeah. I'm to- I'm totally with you guys on that. On that because that was what's bothering me too. I was thinking, well, gosh, well, as soon as I saw, I was like, man, now I really wish I would not have seen this because this is kind of really ruins a lot of that tension that's built up like oh you know like oh i can't wait till we go back to the to the gerha compound and find out what the hell happened you know and who who's gonna make out of this thing nope they just kind of spoiled the whole damn thing for me they spoiled the fact that that uh, floyd is uh, obviously fine that simone's fine and that like you said that uh the only person for sure that we know of that got it was uh, was the old man and i i i was just like oh you gotta be kidding me I was really. I wish they would have taken a page out of of, of Mad Men here and just like give me nothing. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. We'll have to keep an eye on that and we'll take a look next week at where we go with this particular episode. Are we going to see the kind of shootout that we didn't see or from the other end or are we going to see how all that plays out? I mean, Milligan and Kitchenette are still there. So uh, anything I guess could have happened and I guess we'll see it on screen later or we won't and we'll just have it spoiled. But uh, one final note, and this is for the people that stuck around. The ratings for Fargo, Mike, as you were saying, are not, they're not good. They're awful, in fact. Uh, in the they're key low, demo. Break two million, right? Yeah. And in the key demo, they're lower than shows, even like, uh, house hunters and, uh, stuff not, like that. They got so, beat so, by HGTV. Wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. They got beat by HGTV in the demo. I'll tell you what it is. It's this damn tiny house movement. That's what's going on here. <laughs> Too many people are wanting to watch these tiny house episodes. Is that true? I, you, know, I'm not, you know who's up behind the programming at HGTV? Cue the alien theme. Oh, no. Oh, no. Do we need the yeah. alien theme again? No, Here, we can't. Here, let's get a different one going on. Well, that was the HG. That was a live broadcast from inside the HGTV uh, offices. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, yeah, I don't know. It got beat by reruns of the Big Bang Theory. It gets beat by Archer. I mean, these are Archer is a decent show, but it shouldn't. I mean, it shouldn't be leveling with Fargo in the demo, uh, let alone beating it some weeks. So. Fargo's not doing well in the demo. It's a prestige show. I mean, it got a lot of recognition at awards time. FX needs and wants, I think, to be in the prestige TV business. Otherwise, their shows, I think, are a little more base, uh, and they're not necessarily shows that they can really brag about. I think they also like to show a primetime movie before Fargo, so there is some supposed synergy there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is not good. And keep in mind, with a property with a changing cast like this and a changing story, uh, they have to really buy into the property itself. And it seems right now, like in the demo, uh, that's just not happening. So I don't know. It it remains to be seen whether you know this is on a night with Monday Night Football, WWE Raw. Uh, I don't know. Those are, you know, two of the highest rated shows on cable uh, a lot of weeks. So uh, at least in, in, within the demo uh, and especially Monday night or especially Monday night football. So I don't know. It's really tough for Fargo in this time slot. And I hope it doesn't bode poorly for the review for the renewal. But yeah, the ratings are poor right now. Yeah, no, they're de- they're definitely poor. I th- I do just wonder about the night choice, you know, because at first I was thinking this was really smart to stay from Sunday night because there's so many things usually on Sunday night, and to move it to a different night I think is is wise. But I think you're right because we are running this through the fall and we have football on on the hand. That probably definitely doesn't help. So maybe a different evening would be a better choice for them. But I do agree with you. I think that this is the type of show they definitely want on their network. I don't think it's going to maybe discourage them completely from doing another season, and I hope it does not. I do wonder, you know, see, I don't know how the money type part breaks down as far as what they get from a company like Hulu to put it out there for streaming. Uh, Maybe that's obviously an area they can look at because as we've discussed many times on this podcast, this is definitely a show that I think it could see a lot of people binge watching this. And it's going to be one of those things that it just takes a little bit of time for people to really catch up with it. You know, I mean, I know a lot of my friends at work who were big fans of Breaking Bad, but they watched it late like me, like I did and, and binge watch it. I could totally see people like that coming back and saying, oh, if it's that good, I guess I'll go and binge watch it on, on Hulu. And mm-hmm. maybe eventually we'll catch up to where we'll have a larger audience. But uh, it, it, just, it just takes time sometimes for a show like this maybe to really take off. But yeah, they're not promising when you look at the numbers. But eh, I hardly believe that crap anyway. I don't, I don't The rating system in America is just terrible. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who knows how people are watching it? You're right. Yeah. But if I, they want to... I don't they think, want to renew it, they will. I don't think they're, it's too far off. You know, I don't think it's too crazy far off. But I, I do think a lot of people, though, 
DVR shows like this for sure. And I, I'm going to remain optimistic here because I, I mean, a FX isn't a network that really cancels much. I mean, I'm pretty sure out of like, in terms of its comedic content, I'm pretty sure the only comedy that it canceled in the past couple of years was the, the comedians show with uh, Josh Gad and Billy Crystal, which admittedly was not that great, but I feel like FX sort of sees the allure of the anthology series, obviously through um, American horror story as well. And the allure of the anthology series is that if you have a bad season, guess what? You can just bring in a new cast, a new story, and do a completely great season the next time. And so I think even if the the show kind of ends one for two in terms of its batting average, I still think FX is going to be able to say, okay, you'll just go back to the drawing board and come back with a better season for season three, and we'll give you, we'll still give you your your night. Yeah, and I and I'll, I agree with that. And I think I'll close with this and just say, like, I love this cast. I think that everyone that's in this cast, with maybe the exception of the one dimension that Jeffrey Donovan's being given to play, uh, I think the cast is great. Uh, Gene Smart is killing it. You know, I just people across the board are good. Their rates are they have to be lower than what Billy Bob Thornton and Martin Freeman uh, were you know were paid. So I think they went a little cut rate on the salaries of the cast, and I do think that as a result we have a little bit less prestige there uh, in terms of the cast members. It's not a knock on any of them. Uh, it's just I think when it comes to like interested eyes, seeing Martin Freeman play a Minnesotan is a better hook than seeing uh, Patrick Wilson playing young Keith Carradine. So I think that there are those connections as well, uh, or David Carradine. Keith Carradine, David Carradine, Keith, uh, Keith Carradine. Keith Carradine. Yeah. I believe David so. Carradine is dead. Yeah, and I believe so too. So, but anyway, I think that that's part of it as well. But you know, we we certainly appreciate everybody that is watching the show along with us, tuning in, listening to our podcast, participating in our conversation. Thank you, everybody. Again, feel free to tweet at us using what's that hashtag again, Mike? Uh, Stormy Weathers. Stormy Weathers. Yes. So, thank you guys again very much, and have a nice night. Cheers. Mm-hmm.